0: what's the best interest of of me right and what's going to get my best performances and that's where you start to question more and that's where you start to have more input and and a guy like you as opposed to saying well i'm just going to do what coach tells me to do in this college program now it's like hey i want to be the fastest guy in this area and this is how i want it to accomplish it so then you have you have more of a say in the way that you're doing things and and more of an ownership in your own career you know
1: Welcome back to Social Kick. I'm Brian Lundquist. We got a full crew, Dr. John Mullen, Luke Paddington, and one of their most respected personalities in the swimming world, one of the most accomplished sprinters in history, uh, my friend, my coach, uh, and host of Inside with Brett Hawk. Brett, thanks for joining us.
0: Guys, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, man, obviously, it's it's been fun to watch your run post- coaching post swimming and all the things that you've gotten yourself involved in. You're, you're, you're kind of everywhere now. I don't, I don't know uh, what the future holds for you. I'm curious to know your thoughts, but uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a real pleasure to see uh, your success in the sport. And um, you know, are you having fun doing it?
0: I am, man. I am, I'm having a lot of fun um, being the master of my ship, right? Like being able to kind of navigate, um, my narrative and my life's narrative. And I think that's really important. I think I, I was in a period of my life back when I was coaching where I felt very controlled, where I had to, you know, say certain things. I had to wear certain clothes. I had to, you know, do certain things and, and it was restrictive. Like it, it, there's, there's an element of who you are that gets taken away in that like stripped away and, and you become kind of part of a machine right? And, and, and that's okay. That, that, that can be good for a period of time, but I I felt like there was kind of an authenticity that was being taken away from me after a while where I would wake up every morning and I just, I didn't feel like jumping out of bed and, and putting on, it's not an act, but it's not my whole self. It's not just me being me. You know what I mean? So, uh, now I do that. Now I get out of bed and I say, Brett, what do you want to do today? How do you want to do it? And, um, and, and I'm not restricted. You know, I, I did this talk at Asker the other day and, um, and, and I could just be myself. Like I, I wasn't trying to impress anybody. I wasn't trying to worry about whether I was going to get fired for saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong. Th- so it's like it's just there's a freedom in it. Right. And I, and I think you guys understand what I'm talking about with that.
1: Yeah, I don't know that there's a better time in history that you'd have the opportunity to do that. I mean, I think there's a lot of things uh, in society that have sort of led to, you know, from a technology standpoint, from a social standpoint, that's like really encourage people to have their own voice. And I feel like you saw that opportunity. And this is really on brand for you from, from my perspective as having been a pupil of yours. Like you you've made a career out of seeing opportunity, And striking on that opportunity and really leaning into it and making the most out of it on several different fronts, whether that be an opportunity within your professional swimming career
2: to capitalize
1: Mm -hmm. on that, to coaching opportunities, to now like building your platform. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it seems to me from the outside looking in, like, you know, this is is something that you do really well is identify Mm -hmm. where those opportunities are and then time it and get into it.
0: Yeah, I, I think so, and and it it keeps tying back to this idea of of being the master of your ship, you know, like controlling your destiny. Um, you know, there, there's been points in my life where I've looked back and I've felt like, you know, what I didn't I didn't have control of that situation, or I didn't have full understanding of that, and now I do. Now I have experience and knowledge, and now I can use that now. And like, look, one one of the most pivotal moments in my life. Was the 96 Olympic trials where um, I actually got within the qualifying standards, right, Brian? So I finished six in the 100 freestyle, which was the same as the US, right? It was in, within the standard. Yeah. And I think we saw this last year with, with one of the athletes too, where, Brian um, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they didn't pick me on the relay. So then, um, you know, the head coach, Don Talbot, came up to me and said, look, if you finish first or second, Because you finish sixth in the 100, we'll we'll take you to the Olympics. And I finished third by three one-hundredths of a second. And and at that point in time, I was 20 years old. I had just – I'd been out of high school for three years. I dedicated my life. But what I was – the way that I was dedicating my life is I was just doing what someone was telling me to do. Mm -hmm. You know, like, hey, just trust me 100% and I'll get you to the Olympics. Right? And what I learned at that point in time is, like, you've got to also – listen to yourself as well. Like you can't Mm. just put 100% trust in somebody else to get you to where you want to be. You've got to have some control. And that was a huge lesson for me in 96, sitting there watching the Olympics and not being part of it, right? And thinking to myself, at that point in time, I was a zero Olympian, right? And I thought Mm. "I'm, I'm never going to be an Olympian for the rest of my life. I had to sit there while I'm watching the Olympics thinking that will never be my life. Mm -hmm. I'm now going to have to go and get a regular job and be a regular person. And my dreams of being an Olympian are gone. Like it's over. And and from that moment, now I can honestly say, like, I'm a five-time Olympian, right? Mm -hmm. From the moment where I thought I was never going to be one at all to now I look back and I'm a five-time Olympian. I've coached, Mm -hmm. you know, I've made Olympic finals. I've coached Olympic gold medalists. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's incredible when you take control of your life back, what you can turn it into, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, they call me the historian and I think 96, 97 is when I first became a fan of Brett Hook. Um, I'll tell you why, so 96, 97 50 freestyler, I, that was the height of my career as well, there was this American guys and a Russian kid, swimming pretty good in the 50 back then, so I was always for the Commonwealth guys, I was always for Foster and you know and then I heard about this guy Brett Hawke that's a cool name he goes, he mm-hmm. wins Is in what, 97 you won it? 97, right. yeah. Right. So you win NCs, like who is this kid who won NCs of the freshman. Let's pay attention to this Aussie. Then you take down Australia in the 80s and 90s, we were not known for sprinting. You had uh, Duncan Armstrong, Lucky Lane 6. You got uh, uh, Perkins, my idol, you know, back Perkins. then. You were known for that. But not hundreds and not 50s. These people listening to the show now, can you imagine Australia was not really known for the hundreds and 50s back in the 80s and 90s? We're not. Like, right now, that's what you're known for almost. Then you came along. And you started to change narrative of, of Australia sprinting, in my opinion. You and Klim had the Australian record, right, back and forth for a while, right? Um, and then you held it till 06. You made the this was 2000 games. You made the 2004 games. You finals You were second seed in 04. I, what you did to Australia sprinting brought it in, I think, to where we are now going forward. And I, I think that's a bold decision you made in 96-97 um, to, to take control. So again, kudos. yeah
0: i mean you're right and i appreciate you saying those things and, and knowing that about me because it is some something of a sense of pride for me in terms of of your life's history right and 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 i certainly took pride in um changing the narrative of the way that australians looked at sprinting i do feel part of that right and and even to the extent of there was a period of my life where i just i, I relinquished the hundred and said you know what like I'm going to leave it to the guys that are mm. a bit better at this than me. Mm. I'm going to be the most dominant 50 freestyler in Australia, number one, and I'm going to try to be that person in the world. Now, when I would stand up uh, on the blocks next to guys like Gary Hall Jr. and and Alex Popov, I'm not an idiot, right? Like I can see my limitations, you know. Okay. So, but you have to have this sense of self like this over over uh, inflated sense of ego type thing of like yes i can be the number one swimmer in the world right like if Mm. if you don't have that you don't stand a chance so there's certainly meets that i walked into like i'm i'm gonna win this thing you know and and i and i didn't like i didn't win the olympics i finished six was my best the world championships i actually finished fourth at the world championships three times so i missed the podium but but i walked in thinking that I'm the fastest man in the world. I'm going to dominate this race. And and that's the belief that I had. And I think what that ended up doing was translating into these, these youth, these young Australians. And now you have, you know, a, a, a whole slew of, of Australians in this 50 and hundred that have done incredible things. You know, for instance, Eamon Sullivan, I know I had a huge influence on him growing up and, and because I mentored him. Right. And, uh, and so there's a sense of pride when you when you see that change in a country for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. But how how did you choose to just do the 50 back then? People who people like us, we did 150, 100 fly. We didn't to focus on one event of 53. What made you do that and what made you get good at that? Who did you train with? Talk talk us about 98, 99. Who are you training with? What was that mindset just to be a 53 starter? Because it really forecasted the next 20 years of your career, in my opinion.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I knew my skills, right? Brian's, Brian's very similar, right? Like when I coached Brian, we, we had a pretty clear understanding of Brian's skills, what he could do and what he couldn't do. Right. And I think you get to that realization with the, with your coach. And then as an athlete of like, all right, this is what I, this is what I can exploit. I knew I had speed. I had top end speed. I couldn't, I couldn't get the breath and the breathing down the way I needed to, to get into my rhythm and find that, that hundred, Mm. stroke and technique it wasn't a comfortable feeling for me and it's very similar to the way i coached bruno Fratus. bruno was never comfortable in the hundred even though he could put one together um it just wasn't his um forte so Mm -hmm. what i did is i said to myself like look i want to travel the world with the australian team and i want to do it year after year and i don't want have i don't want to have any possibility of that not happening So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the most dominant 50 freestyler that I could possibly be. Mm -hmm. And good luck to anyone who's going to try and beat me because you're going to have to do, you're going to have to work some magic to, to beat me. And Mm -hmm. that was my mentality in Australia is like, yes, I've got Ian Thorpe. I've got Michael Klim. I've got Ashley Callis. I've got, um, you know, uh, Chris Feidler. I mean, these guys could mm -hmm. swim legitimate hundreds and, and they were, by the way, they were on the the four by one relay, all four of them that, that won gold in Sydney. So these were these were the guys I was training with and racing. And so what I said to myself is, I'm never going to be able to guarantee that I could beat all four of them. I could, I might beat one here and there, but I'm not going to beat all four of them on one particular day. Mm-hmm. But what I can mm-hmm. do is, I can, I, I can out, I'm, I'm faster than these guys. I know it. They mm-hmm. can't touch me from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. They can't touch me. So that was my mentality of like that's that's my guarantee, that's my guaranteed ticket to get to any championship that I want to go is right. I'm gonna put all my time and energy into being the fastest from where I could be.
2: Hmm. Yeah, we
0: um hear nowadays a lot about mental training. And like you said, you kind of controlled your own ship at that moment and it sounds like you made a, a pretty strong mental shift. Was that something that you worked with anyone on back then? Was that something that you honed in on your own? And how did you Create that confidence, other than just being able to beat those guys day in and day out, or know you had more speed than them in Australia. Yeah, for sure. I didn't. I didn't do it alone, for sure. I had um, actually a chiropractor um, who was a uh, who was a personal trainer. He was kind of like a, a jack of all trades. Like he was he was he was doing my strength training. He was doing my my body adjustments. Like he was. He was hurting me and then he was fixing me, you know, but he was also working on my mentality. He was just one of these guys that was kind of good energy. Like every time he walked in the door, he was like ready to go. He was pumped up. He was like, okay, we're going to work here. And he, and he was structured. He was planned. So I hooked up with this guy pretty early on. I left, I left college to go professional in 99 and I, and I ran into him. I found him somehow. So aside from having a really good swim coach and a really good team, I put myself back into a team where Chris Feidler was the number one swimmer in Australia. He hadn't been beaten in the 50 in nine years, nine years. He hadn't been beaten. Wow. And I put myself in that position where I'm going home to train with him because I want to figure out like if I'm, if I stand a chance at these trials in 2000, he's the guy I got to beat. So I might as well go train with him. Mm-hmm. I run into this chiropractor and uh, for the next kind of 10 months, he worked on me physically, mentally, and um, and just instilled belief in me, you know, of like, Brett, no one's going to touch you. Like when it's time to get on the block, you're going to be 100 percent ready. And mm-hmm. and my body was ready. It was strong. It was supple. It, w- it was well trained. I had I'd been trained with this guy, so I knew I knew where I could get him. And at that point, I just had so much confidence. It was it was a a no brainer. Like I'm making this Olympic team. No one's touching me, you know.
2: Hmm. before you made that move to australia you did something that not many of your aussies do i'm a big fan of australia i love hmm. i love that country yeah me too you went and swam, <laughs> you but you left it to some college ncaa's not many aussies swimming ncaa's hmm. what, what what made you make that decision how did you end up in a little town in alabama
0: no I, I, exactly look it was the, it was the same thing of like <laughs> hey i've got it i've got to take control here you know hmm. Um, I I don't have many options. I I can stay here and just continue to do the same things or I can go to America and I can learn and grow and compete. I felt like I I was missing competition. I was getting all the training I needed. Like most of the guys back then were trained for the 200, right? There's this mentality in Australia to, you know, to swim fast, you got to train for the 200. And so everybody's going through the motions. The training wasn't necessarily the problem. It was, I had no racing. And so I was like, look, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go to America and get some racing in. Um, it, it was just one of those serendipitous things where I, where I fell into Auburn. I didn't look anywhere else. I kind of, you know, fell into David Marsh's lap and, um, and, and I got lucky. He got lucky. It was just kind of one of those magic moments. And, and I made the most of my time there. I said to myself, like, I'm here to compete. And right. so, like, I competed every day in practice. You can ask David this. Like, we were we were in each other's faces all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, we created this lane eight posse, right, of, like, lane eight's the sprinter's lane. Like, people couldn't come into our lane. you get beaten up if you tried to get into lane eight, you know, like physically beaten up.
2: Mm-hmm. And it was
0: just, like, that was the mentality we had back then of, like, we're, we're the fastest guys. This is our lane. No one can touch us. And it was, like, this mentality of, like, uh, we're going to compete every day you know so I just I was just uh, I just thrived in that environment and it was like a perfect scenario for me
1: hey you were talking to Caesar Cielo recently about uh, you know coaching him to Olympic gold and and asked him hey what is what does it take you tell me I'm, I'm saying I've heard you say this to him like hey tell me because I stood in the Olympic final and you Caesar, are someone who made a history of getting your hand on the wall first. What is it Mm -hmm. that it takes to get your hand on the wall first? And I think it can be, it can be kind of bittersweet when you uh, pursue elite athletics because your expectations are almost never fulfilled, you know, like it's, it's rare that you win every single race at every level. Um, And I found that, you know, post career, it's nice to appreciate those moments where you did achieve and, you know, everyone else, you might not, but everyone else would look at you and go, well, you're an individual NCAA champion. Like on one of the biggest stages ever, you Mm -hmm. got your hand on the wall first and you stood and, you know, looked at Goliath in this case, you know, Neil Walker and said, I'm going to, I'm going to outrace you. Tell that story about the 97 um, Mm -hmm. 50 final. I want to, I want to hear your perspective on like what, what the, what it was like going in the expectations on everyone in the field and, and you winning that race.
0: It was really interesting. I mean, you guys have been to men's NCAAs. There's a buzz on the deck, you know, and, and especially when there's a, there's a superstar kind of walking around the deck, like a Caleb Dressel is there's, there's always a buzz, you know, and there's certainly a buzz with Neil Walker. He's the all American guy. And look, Neil had a, a fantastic career uh, pr- probably way better than the career that I had. If you look at it on paper, you know, uh, for sure just on that particular day, just that one day, I had the better of him, right? That, that was it. And it was probably just that one moment, you know, like uh, 19 seconds, I had the better of him. And, and and the way that I got the better of him that day is there was an enormous amount of pressure on him because in the morning, he I was actually the, uh, the top qualifier. So I was on the last heat, lane four. He was the second fastest qualifier, so he's right in front of me. And I'm standing behind him. And I see this kid go from a 19.6 qualifying time to a 19.0 right in front of me, like drops half a second. And I'm on a 19.6 too. That was my fastest time. And I'm thinking to myself, well, shit, how am I going to drop half a second here? Like that, I mean, that's really good. You know, it was almost like, dude, well done. Like you you are legit. You're as good as everybody's saying you are. And, and And it was a prelim swim. So everyone was like, oh, well, wait till he goes, wait till he swims faster at night. So it was almost like this, expectation that he was going to be the first guy under 19 seconds and everybody was just kind of that was the sense on deck there was like no question and i remember coming back that night and thinking to myself oh well he's won it you know i'll be pretty happy if i get second cool and i just remember looking over when they were doing the introductions and i could just see i could see the pressure on him like i could you know what it's like when you see body language like his body language is just like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders and I and I literally had this thought in my head of like, oh my God, this this guy's pissing himself, you know, like he's pissing his pants. Like, that that's just the reality of like what I was thinking in my head. And I thought to myself, mm-hmm. like, I got this guy. Like, he's not beating me. Mm-hmm. And and I just remember standing on the blocks and and just turning my brain off and being like, go, just go, you know. And and I, I you know what it's like when you have those feelings, Brian, of like you don't remember the race. Like everything is mm-hmm. just flowing and you're just like moving. And you look in, and 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 like you, you touch the wall, and you're like, "Holy shit! Like, what did I just do?" You know, like I had that feeling, and I remember like I headbutted the block, and my whole team like went crazy. It was like, you know, it was just one of those moments where you were just indestructible. Like you just knew it, and and you don't have those moments very often in your career. I certainly didn't have that feeling in the Olympic final where I was like, "Oh, I've, I'm gonna, I got these guys," you know what I mean? So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was just one of those experiences where I just had the better of him at that point in time.
1: Well, how did how did you think about that experience in preparation for an Olympic final and the World Championship finals? Uh, was there anything that you looked back on and said, these are things that I did well and was able to, you know, in one way exploit a competitor and use that to your advantage? Um, you know, was it that you looked for these opportunities and maybe didn't see it <laughs> again later? Like, what are what you what did you take from that, that you applied later? Yeah. And why?
0: I think in terms of my coaching, I learned more from, I learned more how to be a better coach of an athlete in that position. Right. And Mm -hmm. so what I, what I would do is I would allow my athletes to be the best version of themselves that in that moment. Right. And so what I, what I did, I think the mistake I made in, in a couple of world championship finals Olympic finals, like, I constantly made the same mistake and, and it bothers me to this day of like I get there and, and things are, are, are good and I immediately think if I win this, it can change my life. Like I had this, I had this um, thought of the end result, you know, like immediately start thinking of the end result, even behind the blocks of like, oh, wow, in, in 21 seconds from now, I'm going to be Olympic champion, you know, like you shouldn't be having those thoughts right then and there. Right. The thought should just be, be clear and, and nothing. Um, you know, I've talked to Anthony Irvin about this. How do you win gold medals at the Olympics 16 years apart? He's like, I just turned my brain off and let, let it go. And that's what I didn't do, you know. And, and, it, and it's not like I'm thinking for minutes. It's like a fleeting thought. Right. But, like, you allow it to come in and, and, and as soon as those thoughts come in, they, they, um, they corrupt your, your, your body, you know, it's like a corruption Mm -hmm. and you don't allow yourself to be the best version of yourself. And so what I try to do with my athletes is allow the freedom just to, just to turn off, you know, and don't put pressure in terms of you have to do this and this is going to happen and that's going to happen and this is going to change your life. And you're going to get all this money. Like, no, we're going out there to swim as fast as we possibly can from here to here. That's it. You know, just simplifying it Mm -hmm. to where it's just do the deed, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. You're talking about how you are applying m- mistakes of your career to your coaching, and uh, you know all who've coached have done that. But what was your greatest race, and how do you apply those moments? Was what was your greatest race? Was it a summer league team when you beat the kid next door? Was it NCs? Was it what was your greatest race? And you know the positivity and how you use that in your coaching or your life.
0: Um, I I think my greatest race was at that championship in '97 where. We were in the the 200 medley relay and um, we were in third place. I dove in third place on the freestyle leg. So it was Stanford and Texas were ahead of us. I can't remember who was was in what position. I just know Stanford and Texas dove in ahead of me and I went 18 6 on the back end of the relay it was it was like the fastest split in history no one had ever gone 18.6 before it was ridiculous you know in in just a little speedo yeah, back in 97 right like it just people didn't swim that fast back then and i went 18.6 and i swam past two guys who legitimately swam really well like 19 flats you know and and back then you'd think wow what a great split i smoked them you know so like that was easily the best swim of my life where I felt like I was motoring down the pool. Like I was grabbing buckets of water
2: hmm.
0: and those guys were not going to beat me. It was like, I knew I was behind too. Like I could see, you could see flash, flash, you know, when guys dive in the pool, you're not, you're not staring at them, but you can see them go. And I'm like, I'm catching them, you know, like immediately thought I'm catching them. Mm-hmm. And, and when you have moments like that, man, oh, you you wish every race was like that, but, doesn't work out that way
2: what did you harness from that moment that you applied to a situation in the next 20 years simplify it
0: just simplify it Mm -hmm. you know all you got to do is swim you don't have to try and swim fast i didn't try to swim fast at that point i didn't say to myself pull harder you know like kick harder like (laughs) think about your breakout i just thought i'm catching them and it was just go right like you go into an automatic Yeah, and that's what i always try to get my athletes to do is like stop thinking and just allow yourself now you had to do those you had to train at a certain level in order to tap into that right and so we we trained hard and i put a lot of pressure on my athletes brian can attest to this and there's moments where i'm like really putting pressure on them to train so that when we get to those moments you're like oh yeah i've 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 done this. I've trained harder than this. I've had to catch guys in practice. I've had Brett yelling at me. I'm like, this is easy. Here we go. You know? So you want those feelings to just be automatic at that point. Mm.
1: I wanted to get your perspective on your approach to professionalism. Cause by the time that you started coaching me and in our, in our group, which, you know, you kind of came into by, by happenstance, it wasn't your intention. You just showed up on deck and were this wealth of experience having come fresh off your professional swimming career. And, and then suddenly, you know, experiment turned into, you know, a coaching career and, and, and a lot of success along the way and influencing a lot of lives, including mine. But you, you brought this perspective that I personally hadn't seen before. And I'd been around people at Auburn who were Olympic medalists and, they were part of the training group but your situation was different in that you were you were at that level and had been at that level for a long time but also had a family you had commitments and your your approach to the things that you did on a daily basis was was just different you know and i remember you talking about uh having built this network of resources that would help you be better whether that was buying your own cameras because their there, cameras didn't exist on your on your pool deck and your training environment and you needed to get that feedback like we took that as something that was just maybe for granted it was resources that existed already mm. and yet here you were kind of on your own and if you you had to own your destiny and so yeah. when you showed back up there was this this totally just different wealth of knowledge that said like this guys, this is what it takes. If you want to sustain a certain level of success, um, achieve it and, and stay there and, and build a career out of it. Um, Like where did that come from? How did you build that from the moment you stepped away from Auburn and flip the switch on to, okay, like I'm, I'm into this, I'm in deep, I'm committing to this swimming career and I'm going to be, I'm going to be the best. Did it happen over time or like what, how did you get there?
0: Yeah. Uh, it, it's a good question. You know, like I didn't intend to be a swim coach. That was not my intention, but it ha- it just so happened that at the age of 31 in 2006, Incredible. Um, I was, I was one of the fastest swimmers in the world. At that point, I was not injured. I was at the top of my game. I could have gone to 2008, but, but mentally I was, I was satisfied. Like I had done what I wanted to do but I had this wealth of knowledge and I had this enthusiasm to still like, like I could have kept training. Right. But like coming to practice and training, you guys was almost like me coming a lot of the times, you know, I was very into what you guys were doing, whether it was in the gym, I'd be working out with you or stretching with you or like, I still felt connected to the group in a lot of ways. So like, I think you guys appreciated the fact of like, Oh, this guy's all in here. It was just a natural transition for me to do that. But then it was like, I have all this experience of like, Hey, these, you know, like if, if you do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and take care of all that, like we can all have success, you know, like I've learned through this process, but there has to be a commitment to the, to the task. And and I think you realize too, is like, I didn't want to do any more than we had to do. You know, like we, our training group did um, just enough to be good in what we wanted to be good in, right? Like for me, it was like, if you want to swim 100, train for the 100. Don't do don't train for the 200 like where I've come from. Don't do things that are unnecessary in order to be successful in what you want to be successful in. Now, if you want to train for the two, if you want to swim the 200, then yes, we have to train for it for sure. But the majority of our group were, were doing that. And so for me, it was like there was just a um, an excitement of, of feeling like I was still part of this, group of young guys who were all trying to do what I what I had just done you know what I mean so I think there was that aspect of it uh for sure yeah
2: I mean like training for
0: minimal effective dose or specificity was something that you were trying to preach back then probably before those were common things with uh you know USRPT and all that coming later um do you feel like that came with um, open arms with the coaching community or that your perspectives that you brought at that point were kind of cutting edge and different. You know, I wasn't trying to do less. That's, that's the myth. That's the, I wasn't trying to do less by, Mm -hmm. by intentional sake. I was trying to do what was necessary. Sure. Right. Like in order to swim fast, you've got to train fast. (laughs) So like we're going to train fast in order to have um, a great, underwater and kick out we're going to have to train our underwaters and kick out in order to finish races we're going to have to have some speed endurance right like i looked at the race as like what do we need to be successful in? it wasn't like how can we do less it was like how can we do what's appropriate right and that was my mentality a lot of what i did with brian like he'll tell you we're in the pool for two hours just like everybody else mm-hmm. now we weren't just churning up and down the whole time but we're mm-hmm. working and we're going from here to here to here we're doing all sorts of different things, mm-hmm. changing up the variables and, and having fun with it because fun's part of the process, right? Like, you got to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. A miserable swimmer is not a successful swimmer, you know. A happy, fast swimmer who, you know, who is working just as hard as the guy next to him, but high fiving at the same time. Like, to me, that's the type of environment that I want to be in. So, like, I tried to create an environment where I was like, Hey, Brett. What would you want to be in right now? How would you want to get the most out of yourself? Like you're you're still an athlete who can identify with these guys. What would you want right now? And so I mm-hmm. tried to create an environment where I would want to come to practice and be part of that. And um, mm-hmm. and so that that didn't mean doing less by any means, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Brian, give us a story about Brett. Did Brett ever try to jump in practice and race you guys or, or stack up the, the, the weights and bench against you guys in professional soccer you get player managers who play and manage as well or is that crossing a line and in coaching you really have to draw the line
1: no well that, that was what was so fun about brett as a coach because well first he had very recently finished the athletic career as a swimmer so like and i don't know brett you really thought about yourself as being retired at that point you know and, and one of the things that like You used, Brett used to shave down, you used to shave down for, for our meets. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like you were, you were just (laughs) on coaching, but I remember you showing Mm -hmm. up to NCAAs the first year and you're just like, I just had to get a fresh shave. I'm fired (laughs) up. (laughs) It's like, you know, um,
0: I I I I
1: remember when, you know, when you were just talking to Caesar about this too, where he's like saying, you know, the, the unique perspective of being able to have a coach who had Olympic final experience in the very last Olympic final before yeah, the, the next yeah. one, you know, like, I don't think that's ever happened in history where you have, uh, you know, someone who's in the final and then four years later they coach the gold medalist. that yeah. it was, it was, it was, it was almost like we were just boys, you know, we were just, we were just bros. And, um, and we had a couple, a couple females in the group, but for the most part, a bunch of guys and we were all just hanging out and you were part of the group. You were, you were the alpha and the leader of the group, a leader of the pack. Uh, but, but it was, it, it was almost like, you know, we were peers in a way and you were the captain of the team rather than, you know, you were this coach that had a big age gap between us and, yeah um, you know, and yeah, obviously like in the gym, you know, doing workouts with us. And I think the, the thing that stood out to me was the, the creativity. And, and again, like, I don't know where this comes from and I'm curious to know where, uh, what your thoughts on it are, because I had never met a coach and believe me, like, You and I were both coached by David Marsh, who was ultra creative. You took creativity in my mind to the next level with just being able to change things up. Yes, we were focusing on different areas of the race, be it, you know, every specific detail, the breakdown needed to swim fast in a 50 or 100. But you did so with. A lot of different elements, and we were doing something different every day that we showed up, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> whether that's a Gatorade set or uh, something actually more serious and, and intentional. And um, yeah, like, have have you always had this creative brain? Where did that come from?
0: You know what? I didn't I didn't realize I was that creative until I was kind of put in that position. I never considered myself to be a creative person, um, but when I was in that position, I'm like, wow, that's really creative brett like how the hell did you think of that and i think there's a couple of situations here there was it it was a a lot of it stemmed from david marsh right he allowed me put me in a situation where he said brett be creative like he literally said Hmm. be creative have fun with these guys but he also said get them to swim fast right there was an expectation of these guys need to swim fast and so there was this pressure of like hey um We've got to prove ourselves, guys. We're gonna have some fun, but we gotta prove as well. We gotta get results. So there was always that idea of we're doing something for the result, and and it wasn't just like have fun for the sake of fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always thought to myself, like, how can I change it up? I remember we used to go on bike rides, you know. Like mm-hmm. I said to the guys one day, like, everybody get a bike. I don't care if it's a road bike, mm-hmm. a mountain bike, whatever it is just get a bike and we're going to go for, we're going to go on a ride. And these rides became competitive. You know, it was like, mm-hmm. we just did stuff like that where it was kind of like, we, it wasn't planned. You wouldn't read about it in a textbook, but it had such an effect on the group of like guys mm-hmm. putting bike shorts on and kind of strapping into some pedals and like going out and riding with the boys, you know, like it was something about it. it was, and we just did stuff like that all the time mm-hmm. where I would just walk into practice Sometimes I'd go in early and I'd just look at the pool and I'd be like, okay, what can I do today? What can I do today? And I would just like, I would just have these creative thoughts of like, I've got to, I've got to stimulate these guys a different way today. I've got to challenge them in a different way. I've got to make them feel like this is the the best workout they've ever done. And but that pressure came from David, right? So I've got to give David a lot of credit and the freedom came from him of just and then the extension of that was Richard Quick came in, right? And Richard was very similar. By that stage, we'd, we got some results. Guys were swimming fast. To Richard's credit, he was like, Brett, just keep doing what you're doing, you know? And I was like, okay, it seems to be working. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Why was Auburn so good in 2009? How, 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 when that 200 freestyle record is a legendary among 20 other swims. You know, that, that Why were you guys so good from a coaching perspective?
0: 2009, I think by that stage, we had, uh, we had tweaked some things. Like we weren't in the experimental stage anymore. Like I think 2006 for me was experimental, like that summer. Mm. That was an experimental summer, right? Like I had never written a workout before. By the time we get to 2009, we've got a couple of years of like really good work being laid out. Okay. The team was coming together. We'd recruited well you know brian's not going to give himself enough credit here but he was he was talented right and that group was talented i'm not saying brian had the talent of Cesar Cielo. brian's a talented swimmer and brian's a hard worker man that guy's going to come and he's going to he's going to he's going to give you work he's going to give you effort he's not going to make excuses he's not going to bitch and moan he's not going to cry he's going to come and be as competitive as he can be to be the best he can be and that's that was the mindset of that whole group, right? Like we didn't have a bunch of whiners, and 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 you know they wanted to be successful. They wanted to be the fastest relay in history. Like that was their intention. Of like, guys, have a look around here. Look what we got. Like we want to be better than everybody. And so, when you have that group mentality, um, and and things just click. Uh, now, two thousand nine, there was also some some st- some circumstances that kind of led us to uh winning that national championship that was was pretty interesting i don't i don't know if i've fully told that story about 2009 before um but we were we were um in in practice like a couple of weeks before and we couldn't we couldn't get our suits from speeder right like we, we were panicking and Speedo had told us, like, hey, we don't, we don't think we're going to have enough suits. We don't know if they're going to be on time. If they do turn up on time, you know, they're going to turn up to the hotel. So, you know, we hope you get them. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not. You know me, Brian. I'm like, no, I'm not taking chances on these guys. Like, these guys are the best unit in the world. Like, I'm finding suits. So, Fred Brisquet turns up with this, like, jacket suit, you know, and he, and he does this time trial in practice. And he goes under 19 seconds in practice, and I'm like, whatever that is, I'm, I'm, I got to get some of those. I'm like, Fred's like, yeah, I got a contact. So we call someone up, and they're like, look, it's about you know 500 bucks a suit. And I, I go to my athletic department. And I'm like, I don't know if, whether I'm going to get these sponsored suits. Long story short, I'm like, they, they said, yeah, we'll give you three grand. That's it. We'll give you three grand. So I'm like, okay, let's get as many suits as we can for these guys as backup, mm-hmm. right? Just as a backup in case the suits don't turn up. Anyway, these jacket suits turn up the day before we do stingers at NCAA's and we uh we decided to put them on just for fun and we line up next to Dave Durden and Cal, you know, and we put these suits on. first of all, like trying these things on the night before um was like it was like a joke. it was like, look at these things, these are the most ridiculous things, you know, like guys are tr- walking around the the uh, hotel lobby, you know just in these in these suits and it's like what is happening here and they're all colored they're all shiny and it's like you know, so like the vibe was just right you know like for an NCAA is, and and we knew we were the only ones with them so uh, we line up next to Dave Durden we we start doing these stingers and my guys are just shredding his guys and Dave Durden whispers to his guys and and they move over to the other side of the pool because like we lined up right next to him and 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 in practice my guys were killing these guys so they go over there and uh, and move and then we knew from that moment it was like I said to our guys, "Like oh, we've got we've got these secret suits that nobody has and we're gonna so guys were like literally Brian, I think you were in the locker room, right? Like pulling suits off guys and switching. The time. Them.
1: I was in the locker room at Texas A M the entire weekend. <laughs> I left what looked like I looked like a catcher, like I yeah. band aids all over, I was bleeding everywhere, just drying yeah. off suits and giving it to the next guy, because we only had eight or nine of them.
0: Yeah, we only had about eight suits and and we we hadn't even tested them. So guys didn't even know whether they were going to swim fast in them or not. But we were just Mm -hmm. like, oh, we got these magic suits and Brian's going to be in the locker room. He's going to strip them off you and then someone else is going to put it on. So we just had guys ripping suits off, putting them back on, racing, rip it off, put it back. So it was like this suit swap.
2: They trusted you guys. How come they didn't freak out? I would freak out if something new was being put in my arsenal the day before my biggest in my life. What made them trust you?
0: Because we just said to the guys, hey, guys, we've got these secret suits. We call them the secret suits. No one else has these things. You know, when you have something no one else has, mm. it's like you feel like you've got this secret weapon, right? And um, and I remember um, going to the U.S. Open. Like everyone was so critical of us and having these suits. So then um, the U.S. Nationals was a few months later long course. And I remember standing next to the Texas guys. And the Texas guys had these suits. Now, a couple of months later, now they'd just been bitching about how they got beat and I remember they were swimming this long course meet and they were, they were racing in these jacket suits and every one of them came back and they were like, this suit sucks. I don't know what the hell they, th- they, they were telling me why these suits are so good. These suits, su-. and like the Texas guys were swimming terrible in them. So it was like a couple of, like a few months earlier, they're like, oh, they've got these, you know, that's why they beat us. They had these secret suits. And then two months later, they're telling us how, how much they suck. So it was really, as a mentality, right? Like it was just that mentality of like, we had something that other people didn't have and, uh, and the guys just bought into it, you know?
2: Was that Auburn's greatest year? And would Rowdy, Eddie, Dean Hutch all agree? What, or when was Auburn's greatest year of male swimming, men's swimming?
0: I don't know, Brian. What do you think? I mean, I, no, no. I think, look, honestly, if you got to give the credit to the George Bavell class, right? Uh, yeah. The guys that never lost. Like, yeah. they didn't lose for four years. Like, come on. You can't beat that class. Uh, Eric Chanteau, George yeah. Bavell. Uh, I think Kurt Katie may have been in there. So it was like this group that came in as freshmen. They raced every door meet, every SECs, every NCAA's. Never lost in four years. I mean, that's got to be the greatest team in history, right?
1: Yeah, I think I think as in terms of class performance, I would agree. I think 2004. Uh, I don't the points. I don't know what the points record is now, but the mm. the 2004 team set the points record and they won. At the time, it was six hundred six hundred plus points, six oh four, I think. And you know they beat their next competitor by 300 points. Yeah, they had several events with with four in the final, the 50 free, the 100 breast. Yeah. Uh, it was just such a dominating performance. The last year that NCAA's was short course meters, you had Fred and George both set world records. Right. To me, that was that was yeah. the, the most impressive single year uh, of Auburn men swimming. Yeah. Um. But um. Yeah.
0: But it built, you know, like it started in 97 when I came in. We'd never won before. It was our first championship. And um, we had these guys from UCLA who had just transferred the year before. Yeah, and so uh, we, we kind of had this super team of like I walked in the right place at the right time. We had these two French guys turn up the same day as me, Lionel Moreau and uh, Roman wow. Barnier. Like the, these you know, these three foreign guys turn up on the, on the Auburn pool deck on the same day in January. You know, and a couple of days later, we raced Texas. And, and Eddie's like, who are all these foreign athletes? You know what I mean? And, and so it was like, it was just that, that was the kind of the start, the genesis of this, like, this, this dynasty of, of belief, right? Like, bringing people in and having them believe. And, um, you know, we lost in 98. And I can tell you why we lost in 98, because we, we were so arrogant that we, we got away from doing the things that made us great after our first championship. You know, um, I was watching, I was watching, uh, NFL yesterday and, uh, the LA team, right? Like LA won the, um, the Bowl last year. And I think they've lost their last two games. Right. And they're basically saying they're stuck in this kind of like celebration of last year still of like who they were and what they did. And we kind of, got caught up in that but from that from that 98 we learned so much like we never fell back into that again it was like don't get complacent you know complacency is a killer and so uh from then it just became a dynasty you know
2: i think our sport is complacent and i think people like you what you're doing to make professionalism bringing it back to that topic is what's going to take to grow the sport of ours and do something fresh and new and take control so i like to bring it back to that now of where you are now and and you know the 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 You just spoke at Asker. You just had the head of the World Swimming Association on who's trying to change the sport there. You're trying to change the narrative and what you're doing with your podcast and, and, you know, and the access to the athletes with your app that you're on. That's fantastic. Talk about how how swimming can be a, a, a business and can be professional beyond being a coach, which is what most people just fall into.
0: Yeah. I've had chances to divert, right, and get out. Like I think initially when I started the podcast, I was like, oh, I'll start in I'll start in swimming because it's a low-hanging fruit, but I wanna I wanna do what everybody else is doing. I wanna interview a doctor, I wanna interview a you know, this and that. And you know, you think you want to go in all these different directions with the podcast. And what I realized over time is that I'm sure you guys are the same. You guys do a very similar thing here is like, hey, I can influence swimming, which is a which is a huge deal. Like it's not gonna make me a a millionaire i'm not going to get uh, a million views per per podcast but you know what like i can really influence the state of a sport that i love and the future right and not, not only affect the future but i can record the history as well and, and you and i that's what we're doing right now we're recording some history right now mm-hmm. and i can look back on this podcast in 10 years and be like oh wow like how cool is that that i got to talk about these things and so that's my hope. Like, like I just interviewed Summer McIntosh, right? She's just turned 16. She's a world champion. Like Mm -hmm. she's 16 years old. Imagine what it's going to be like for her. She goes to Paris, she goes to LA, you know, and then maybe she's headed to towards Brisbane in in 10, 12 years from now. And then she looks back on this podcast when she's 16 years old and she's talking about when she was a world champion. Like how cool is that? So yeah, I've had this opportunity to get out of swimming and I just kept, like, I keep getting pulled back in because I'm like, no, it's too important, right? Like, our sport needs a spokesperson. Our, and not just me. I'm talking about you guys too. Like, we need people who fight for swimming, you know, who who believe in swimming, that love swimming, that are passionate about it. I can't afford to walk away from swimming and say, you know what, you're on your own. Figure it out yourself. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get with these athletes too is, like, I got fr- so frustrated with, the lack of professionalism in professional swimming when I went to the ISL and I was seeing mm. the way that these athletes were um, responding to a situation like that, you know? Like you had certainly a small percentage of people that were understanding of, of what was going on. There were very few people within that organization of, of, of swimmers who were actively trying to promote the ISL above and beyond what they were getting paid to do, right? Like, you have a responsibility now. You're in and – and now now it's gone. And I said to these athletes, like, you're not acting like a professional athlete. You're not promoting it. And, you know, well, I should be getting paid for this and that. And like, It's beyond that, right? Nothing like, if you want this thing to last – and now we have these athletes who are retiring at 22, 23 years old because they don't have anything now. Mm-hmm. And my, my, my fight to them was like, guys, act professional and not only act professional of like it frustrated me with some of the best athletes in the world didn't embrace it either of like ah oh, you're on your own like i'm i'm worried about my paycheck over here you know i'm going to make a million dollars over here i'm not going to try and help you and swimming and make swimming better mm-hmm. i'm just care i just care about me right? there's a very there's a very me selfish mentality in swimming that we have to get beyond right it's not about me Sometimes I tell stories where I know I'm going to get 100,000 views and other times I tell stories where I know I'm going to get 100 views. But those stories are equally important, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the way we have to approach this as professionals. And I want the athletes to understand that is like, stop thinking about yourself. Go above and beyond what it means to you and what you're going to get out of it. And what can you do for the sport, you know? That's my rant. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. But
1: so back to something you said earlier about when you were 20 and you, you had this realization when you first met your, your chiropractor and, and um, you know, who ended up doing all these things for you in your careers that you, there was like a switch that flipped where you, you understood that there were things that you needed to do uh, to, to get the best out of yourself. And it was almost like a maturity thing, just like you hit another level and i I'll, I'll I didn't know this when I was working with you as a swimmer, but like one of my biggest regrets, uh, from my swimming career is that I didn't realize, uh, and didn't, didn't, didn't know myself well enough Mm. to be able to vouch for things that I needed as an athlete. And I think, Mm. you know, we were doing a lot of things for, you know, the, the events that we were swimming, but I, I think looking back there. I, I, there were some things that I needed more, more volume for, right. you know, and right. I, and I think that I, but I didn't have the self-awareness to vouch for myself and go, what well, it's my responsibility. I am the owner of my destiny, yeah you know, to, to, to do that. And I think in some ways, when I, when I hear you talk about the professional athletes today and your experience, it's like, there's there's some immaturity in that and yeah. some of it just like innate to the stage of life that you're in. And, yeah. you know, we were at the NCAAs and got to listen to uh, and, and just hear firsthand perspectives from some of the athletes. And it was very clear, some yeah. that were, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, mm-hmm. and they gave answers like an 18, 19, 20 year old. Yeah. And then there were some people like Bjorn Seliger, for example, yeah. who's like, are you actually college age cuz you're talking like you're, you know, late 20s and 30. Yeah. I don't know if that's something that's innate or if it's something that can be coached and or influenced to people that are, you know, just to have a wisdom beyond your years and awareness that the actions that you're taking now although that you're 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 kind of in uh, your formative years still there's there's a moment here that you need to capitalize on, and you may need to you know rapidly mature in order to be able to take advantage of such a thing. Is that? Yeah. My hope is that listening to conversations like the ones you have in your podcast, like ones that we try to have, is that you're you're able to think about the sport and how to approach it mentally, physically, in a different way. That you know kids of a certain age will will hear it and then be able to apply said things earlier than you know, than I did. Um, Yeah. So,
0: yeah, no, I'm like you, like I want more younger people to listen to our podcasts, right? Like listen to what this person's saying. You know, I, I, I told a young girl the other day, she's like, Hey, can I have some advice? I'm like, yeah, the advice is go and listen to Summer McIntosh. She's your age. Listen to how she's speaking. Listen to what she's doing. Listen to how she's taking control of her own destiny. Like these things are important to listen to and, and we can learn from and look, I had the um maybe the the good fortune at that point in time to have uh, been a father, right like by the time I got to the second Olympic trial, so two thousand, I was a father at that stage, you know, and f- so for me it was part of my maturity was like it's it's a matter of life and death here, like I need to be able to support my family, you know, and so like I can't lose, you know like. Before it was like, ah, it's okay if I lose, whatever. Now it's like, no, you can't lose. Now, like, your family depends on you. You got to pay bills. So, like, I had this maturity of, of, um, of being able to kind of uh, rely on that, and I think that's what happens with college kids, right? They're they're in these programs, and kind of what you were saying is like, yeah, you got to toe the line in college. You've got to do certain things that probably aren't to your benefit, but they might be to the benefit of the whole team, right? But there's a point where you move out of college and now it's like, okay, I'm, I'm an individual. I'm a, I'm a professional athlete now. What, what's, what's best for me, Brian, right? And that's the choice that we all have to make. And, and it's, it's tough sometimes. You know, a lot of these kids in college programs, they go through the program, they have success. Like Bjorn, right? He's part of this team. Well, in a year or so, he's going to be on the outside looking in. It's like, Bjorn, that's not your team anymore. You know, you're, you're on your own. And so now it's like, well, what's 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 the best interest of, of me, right? And what's going to get my best performances? And that's where you start to question more, and that's where you start to have more input. And, and a guy like you, as opposed to saying, well, I'm just going to do what coach tells me to do in this college program. Now it's like, hey, I want to be the fastest guy in this area, and this is how I want it to accomplish it. So then you have have more of a say in the way that you're doing things and and more of an ownership in your own career you know Mm -hmm.
2: yeah great a little bit deeper because you and i are about the same age in 96 was my last meet i swam for trinidad and i just missed atlanta by point one or something and i kept swimming for two more years but then i graduated i didn't have this the, the college to support my swimming i had to start working i was 24 years old in 94 eight and I started coaching by accident and I was coaching and I all of a sudden my swimming career just fizzled out. And had I maybe gone on to Sydney, maybe I would have gotten hit Sydney. You at that time had a kid, you kept swimming until you're 31. How did you do it? How how? Like like physically, like money wise and support from family and like and the yeah. mentality. how is that possible what well i mean I-, I
0: was yeah i see where you're going like i was lucky that i was in a country where swimming was revered right like we're on the front page of the newspaper yeah. so then mm-hmm. that that's when my entrepreneurship kind of hustle came in Of like okay i'm i'm now the fastest swimmer in australia but i'm not ian thorpe i gotta compete with ian thorpe and i gotta you know for for eyeballs and money and mm-hmm. sponsorship so it's like how do you put yourself out there so i did i did things right like i have i have a, a magazine down here that um sure you know whether whether you like it or not it, it's it's history and it's reality i did a nude photo shoot for for an olympic magazine right yeah. and yeah. And, it, and it was olympic athletes i think they do the same thing on espn oh. like they what's yeah. that
2: we all yeah. Magazines. Yeah, go
0: ahead. yeah so i did one you know and i just i just i knew like i was a physical specimen like i'm not yeah. now but like <laughs> i was i was a, i was a ripped i was a good looking like i was lifting weights i was fit as hell i'm like you know what like i gotta i gotta put myself out there so i did things where yeah i wasn't gonna have the gold medals that ian thorpe was gonna have and 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 but I, I needed people to know who I was and respect me for what I did in that sense. And so there were certain things that I, I would do. I would look for interviews. I would look for ways that I could put myself out into the public. And I and I guess that's kind of the similar thing to what, what I'm doing now is like you you find ways to self-promote in a way to, to pay bills. Like, you know, it, there's ways that you can do things and... I think a lot of times, and I tell recruits this all the time, don't sit and wait for someone to come and tell you, hey, we want you to swim for us. Go and tell them, yeah. I want to swim for you. That's okay. You can do right. that. Right. You know, yeah. Self-promote. Get yourself out there. And, um, and, and that's what I did. you know. And so uh, that's how I survived.
1: All right. Uh, John's got to take off. So see you, John. Thanks. Thanks, Brad. Later. Brett, uh just want to finish with a few rapid-fire questions before we let you go. Uh-oh. What's the hardest race in swimming?
0: The hardest race in swimming? Well, I haven't, I haven't done them all, so I, I don't know what the hardest one is. I know that the, that the hardest one to win is the 50 freestyle.
1: Glad you didn't say 400 IM. No, so uh, Olympic gold or world record?
0: Olympic gold. Hmm.
1: Which person was the greatest influence on your swimming career?
0: Well, it's not fair to all the people that had an influence, but it's 100% David Marsh, without a doubt.
1: What's the most Australian thing about you?
0: Hmm. I like Vegemite on toast in the morning.
1: Hmm. <laughs> can you find it now?
0: Yeah, you can find it. Yeah. yeah, you can find it in my cupboard upstairs, first of all. But uh, you can, yeah, world market.
1: All right. As a flag-carrying American citizen, what's the most American thing about you?
0: Hmm. Most American thing. That's a good question. What's the most American thing? Um, Wow. This is a tough one. What is the most American thing? (laughs) Uh,
2: You think you've lost uh, your accent?
0: (laughs) No, I haven't lost my accent at all. But Do
2: you spell American?
0: Can I spell American?
2: No, no. Do you spell American? Like O-U-R and R-E and all that stuff they do. You know, color and harbor.
0: Oh, right. Do, you uh, do, I, yeah. do I change my English? Yeah, I do. You have to. I, yeah. I um, especially in the South, right? Yeah. You, have to, you have to change the way you speak. Um, oh. But I guess I wore khakis. You know, I wore khakis for like 10 years. <laughs> so that's probably the most American thing. Uh,
1: do you pee in the pool?
0: uh sure absolutely yeah
1: did the gatorade set accurately capture your coaching philosophy
0: 100 (laughs) percent, yeah it's uh on a whim that was my coaching philosophy
1: was uh was leon edwards head kick knockout the greatest knockout in ufc history
0: oh no 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 i've seen i've seen i've seen better than that but um I've seen a lot of UFC and I've seen some really good knockouts, but uh, Leon Edwards Edwards was was clean, but uh, certainly wasn't the best.
1: I don't think I've ever seen a kick to the liver end a fight before. That was an interesting one. Yeah. All right. Uh, Will we see someone go 19 long course in your lifetime?
0: 19 long course. In my lifetime, no. No. We will see somebody swim. uh, We'll see numerous people swim 20 seconds again uh, here in the future, but uh, no one will swim under 20. It took 20
2: years to go to cross the 21 field. Mm -hmm. 21.9 to 20.9 was 20 years. So you don't think in the next 50 years?
0: Not unless there's some crazy drug that comes out that I don't know about. But, uh, no, it's not going to happen.
1: I don't know, man. The Australian head of state or former head of state now lived to be 96. So that's a pretty good run. Maybe, uh, maybe. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that note, Brett, thanks for hanging out with us. It's super fun to, to watch and listen to all the conversations that you get to have. I feel like I still get to connect with you. Even, even when we don't chat personally, um, and so thank you for, for what you're doing now. And thank you for, you know, all the influence that you've been on, on yeah, me man. and on us. And uh, thank you, buddy. Love you. Appreciate you.
0: I love you guys. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. It's good stuff. Appreciate hey, it.
1: Where can, uh, if th- there's highly doubtful, anybody listens to us and doesn't listen to you, but just in case, tell us uh, where everybody can find you.
0: I just say inside with Brett Hawk on YouTube is the best place to find me. Yeah.
1: Right on. All right. That's it for this episode of social kick and we'll see you later. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you're enjoying Social Kick, tell your friends about it, and be sure to tell us what you liked by leaving a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Social Kick, and you can find all of our content on our website.